CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable and what a week it has been. Donald Trump finally threw Dr. Anthony Fauci under the bus. He also attacked Barack Obama, accusing him of committing the worst crime in American history. A recently fired Trump health official accused the Trump administration of doing everything wrong on coronavirus. Senator Richard Burr under investigation for profiteering from the pandemic. And Joe Biden trying to stay relevant from his basement kicks off the search for a female running mate. So much to talk about, so little time, so let's get right to it with Jen Bendry, senior politics reporter for Huffington Post, joining us back for the first time since her maternity leave. And we thank Hope for letting her mommy join us this morning. Hi, Jen. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, national politics reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hi, Sabrina. Hello, hello. And uh, Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bill. And all joining us from their home, all social distancing, uh, of course, uh, just to bring us back up to date, dealing with the coronavirus. The latest numbers this morning are 1.4 million cases in the United States, 86,500 who've died from the disease, and 30 million Americans out of work. And in the middle of that, there's. I want to start with Something that happened this week, I can't believe, did not get more attention. But the president of the United States accused the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, of, quote, the biggest political crime and scandal in the history of the USA. He called it Obamagate. And when Phil Rucker from The Washington Post asked him exactly what he meant, the president said, quote, you know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers. Donald Trump accusing Barack Obama of the greatest crime and scandal in the history of the United States. Sabrina, what the hell is going on? And why didn't why wasn't that on the front page of every newspaper in the country, including The Wall Street <laughs> Journal? <laughs> I mean, it's it's bizarre, um, the, especially when he was directly asked what he was talking about, and he couldn't say because it doesn't exist. And uh, I think that, as usual, this is a president who wants to deflect, and he wants to be able to especially deflect blame, uh, in this case, distract from the fact that the U.S. has more coronavirus cases than any other country in the world, that the rest of the world is watching the Trump administration really struggling to respond to the pandemic. And if he can blame his predecessor for anything, he's going to do it. Um, I, 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 you know, in terms of what the coverage was like, I don't, I think it's telling that at this point, 
a lot of reporters, a lot of news outlets don't even know what to do with some of these comments that Trump throws out there because they're just, do they chase it or do they stay focused on his own coronavirus response? So I do think that the, the point was, we don't want to go down a rabbit hole trying to understand what Obamagate is or even analyze why Trump would throw out this conspiracy theory that, that he hasn't even really detailed, um, but rather stay focused on his coronavirus response and the fact that there continues to be uh, a shortage in testing and there continues uh, to be no clear plan for how this administration plans uh, for how this administration is responding to the pandemic and and mm-hmm. to what, what the new normal will look like when the president himself is now feuding with his uh, top health experts. Uh, and Jen, uh, the president said, Donald Trump said that the Senate has to investigate this, have to hold hearings right away and yank Obama in front of the Senate to, to answer for this. Is that going to happen? No. And it, it would be hilarious at what he's doing if it wasn't so tragic and scary because it is all about deflecting as sabrina said from his botched response to the coronavirus pandemic and at this point he's 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 so known for trying to blame other people and other things for everything that is connected to him that he's actually created a completely fictitious uh controversy where he it's it's so obvious there's nothing but he's just going with it anyway i mean it's it's like he's run out of actual real people to blame. And so now he's created a fake invisible thing and said, oh, we know what that is. It it, it feels like it's from a Twilight Zone episode. But the, I mean, the reality is this is not it's not real. And also, no, it's not going to go anywhere in Congress because he actually Trump tweeted at Senator Lindsey Graham, who mm-hmm. controls the Senate Judiciary Committee and said, Lindsey, you need to get. Barack Obama before your committee immediately. That's what I would do. We need to get to the bottom of this. And even Lindsey Graham, who is pretty loyal to President Trump and goes golfing with him and has tried to align himself with Trump, even Lindsey Graham put out a statement saying like, uh, we're not going to do that. And you need to be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you wish for is what he said. Yeah, right. Because that would, he knows as, as beholden as he is to Trump that the prospect of bringing Barack Obama before the Judiciary Committee to ask him about a fake controversy would just blow up in their faces. Right. So, Chris, I think there would be serious consequences if any of the rest of us went around accusing someone of a major crime without having any evidence uh, to support it. So is this just all about revving up the base? Again? Yeah, I think we're, we're at a point where Trump is talking to such a narrow audience. I was thinking about how many people out there even know what the term unmasking means. Um, and the people who do might be fired up by it, but everybody else is just totally in the dark. And you talk about the coverage of this. It seems like we're coming up on a time where Barack Obama is about to go out there and be a pretty high-profile surrogate for Joe Biden. And Trump is basically elevating Obama into this 2020 race. And um, that's something that I think Biden would have absolutely no problem with because, you know, Biden's been doing that for two years now and trying to hug Obama as closely as he can. And so you have this super strange dynamic with Trump bringing Obama into this next election. And Obama, of course, uh, still certainly more popular among Democrats than Joe Biden is, um, is, is basically mm-hmm. out there trying to help Biden. And so 
you know, when you when when you look at the average person who who sees this, I don't think they have any idea about Obamagate or can explain it. I mean, Trump, I think, has had trouble in interviews explaining what it even is. Um, and so it's it's clearly a way to sort of rev up the base. But I don't even know that it has like broad appeal across the base. And yesterday, in terms of someone who did testify uh, in front of Congress in pretty dramatic testimony, Rick Bright, who was until very recently, uh, until he was fired, the head of the Department of Health and Human Services office to uh, to develop a, va a vaccine, he testified in the House uh, yesterday with some pretty dramatic testimony and a warning. Here is Rick Bright. Our window of opportunity is closing. If we fail to improve our response now based on science, I fear the pandemic will get worse and be prolonged. There will be likely a resurgence of COVID-19 this fall. It will be greatly compounded by the challenges of seasonal influenza. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. We have the world's greatest scientists. Let us lead. Let us speak without fear of retribution. The darkest winter in modern history. Jen, uh, but is anybody listening? Does anybody care? Does anybody care that we might have the darkest winter in modern history I guess because it, we're not handling the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic? Well, I, I mean, care. What's Congress going to do about a warning like that? That's, I guess, my real question. I mean, I, I mean, at this point, all they can do is listen and consider the, that this is a PhD scientist talking about the realities of a pandemic. And I, I think it's pretty well known that the administration has, has botched its response, and despite what Trump says. And they're hearing testimony from someone who knows science and he knows this virus, like he knows the reality of where things are headed if we don't do something. So, you know, are people listening? Yes. I think the the question is, what what will Congress do about it? They're they're already divided right now on, on whether to do another aid package. Mitch McConnell says we're done for now. And and the, the House Democrats are about to pass a bill today that would is a well it's a three trillion dollar bill that is not going to become law but um it shows the kinds of things that that they would like to see become law as you know to do something about this so at least it's a starting point for a conversation about the reality of how big this is right uh and uh, sabrina the president um there's a lot of talk about <clears throat> of course, testing. Are we doing enough testing? The president says we're doing more testing than anybody else on the planet. But then yesterday he made a, a weird remark about testing is that maybe more testing is not such a good idea. Here's President Trump yesterday. We have more cases than anybody in the world. But why? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. Ha -ha. Oh boy! <laughs> we don't want to know, right? <laughs> He's effectively said the quiet part that's going through his mind out loud here, where you know, Which for he a long does. so he was very, it was the administration was delayed in getting tests to healthcare professionals in the in the first couple months of this pandemic, uh, and there continues to be a shortage in testing. And I think all along there has been some belief that perhaps 
part of that had to do with, in addition to just the mishandling of the of the response, but part of that had to do with maybe the president not wanting the U.S. to report as many cases as all health experts believe to be spreading across the country. And now he's admitted it uh, because President Trump tends to do that. Um, and look, I think that the, the, when you talk about the testimony from Rick Bright um, and you then you hear that juxtaposed with uh, President Trump's comments, the, the, the thing that's so troubling about this is scientists are not the ones who are calling the shots. Um you know, even if Congress passes a relief bill that's designed to uh, re restore the or revive the economy and and get more equipment out uh, to states and localities and to healthcare professionals, at the end of the day, um, there's so much authority that President Trump has in terms of where we go from here, and so if that's his answer on testing and if he's now calling testing overrated um, and now he's also publicly repudiating Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top uh, infectious disease expert, it raises a lot of concerns for what that means for the kind of forced timeline that he wants to operate off of, mm -hmm. um, which all I think health experts are saying is only going to exacerbate uh, the problem. Right. So, Chris, one of the uh, back to sort of blaming Obama from the beginning, the president has said, uh, well, here's the problem is we didn't have a, it, it, there was no plan for this. Uh, Obama had left no plan, hadn't done anything. We had to start from scratch. Um, Mitch McConnell has even echoed that and said uh, the same thing, blaming Obama until he was caught yesterday. Mitch McConnell, this is a very rare <laughs> A uh, little statement on the part of McConnell, which I feel compelled to play. Brett Baer calling Mitch McConnell on that statement. And Mitch McConnell, believe it or not, backing down. Here's that little exchange. You said that the previous administration didn't leave a plan. They pushed back against that. I was wrong. They did leave behind a plan. So I, I clearly uh, made a mistake in that regard. As to whether or not the plan was followed and who's the critic and all the rest, I don't have any observation about that because I don't know enough uh, about the details of that, uh, Brett, to comment on it in, in any detail. Chris, that's a, <laughs> uh, that's a pretty candid statement, right, uh, on the part of Mitch McConnell. Yeah, and that statement came after the, the Monday press conference that the president had on testing. I think if you listen closely to what uh, Donald Trump is saying, it's not only – and Republicans, it's not only this initial kind of misstatement that the Obama administration didn't leave behind a plan. It's basically that – and Trump likes to use this phrase now – they left the cupboard bare. So he's trying to blame – the administration not only for not leaving a plan, but but basically not uh, uh, having the the Federal uh, Reserve of medical supplies adequately stocked, and so I think he's looking for every single possible thing he can um, to blame on the previous administration, and you saw that with uh, with McConnell's statement, which he which he walked back. The other thing for Trump is that like. We're basically learning the more and more he talks about this. The only real pivot he has is to the economy and to reopening the economy. He, he doesn't really have answers for all of the missteps um, that the administration has made in, in getting to where we are. And now you have – he also doesn't really have a plan out of this or at least one that he's explaining um, 
to the American people. And you have people like Lindsey Graham out there saying, well, if we if we can just hit uh, no more than 120,000 deaths, that this will um, somehow be looked at as a uh, success on the part of the Trump administration. Um, Trump hasn't put a number out there, but clearly we're rapidly approaching that number. And I, there's not necessarily even an explanation for why that would be a success. Um, Trump has said, well, millions could have died if we if we didn't act as quickly as we did. A lot of the actions we know that were taken across the country were done by uh, governors who actually uh, listened to their health officials uh, fairly universally, whether they were in the, and this is uh, governors for the most part in states that have been hit hard, whether they were in the Republican Party mm-hmm. or the Democratic Party. And so, uh, you know, this idea that, that they didn't leave behind a plan is part of a much broader argument they're making that they also didn't leave supplies and that Trump is going to leave supplies for the next administration. So um, it's sort of a combo message of um, it's somebody else's fault and we need to reopen the economy because things are really bad and and that's kind of where he goes with this there's there's not a lot of way to explain um, all the problems that we've seen now most of us the four of us have spent a lot of time um, at the White House in the White House briefing room uh, and in those corridors of the West Wing um, and now we see that the president's valet has the coronavirus uh, and the press secretary for president vice president Trump has the coronavirus. Jen, is the West Wing the new hotspot for the coronavirus? Uh, well, I can say that I would not want to be in the West Wing right now because it nor, feels nor like I. all the all the conditions in there seem to meet the criteria for exactly what not to do. They are it's a cramped space with with a lot of people, at least typically. I don't know how thin it looks now, but it's a cramped space with people all squished in there. The, a number of people in the West Wing who work there uh, in the, within the White House are not wearing face masks. At least they haven't been mm-hmm. until very recently. I know as recently as a few days ago, a couple of days ago, even the White House press secretary and her aides, uh, her like less senior aides, were not wearing masks at a press event. All the reporters are wearing masks. All the photographers are wearing masks. The president is not wearing a mask. Uh, so they're in close quarters. Uh, there's just so many factors in there. It's, it's I don't... remember it being particularly well ventilated in there uh you put those all together and that feels very unsafe and i just i was reading i saw yesterday that um the company that makes the you know one thing they they've argued is oh well you know the president doesn't need to wear a mask you know he's getting tested every day we do we test everybody when they come in and out of the white house so as long as they get tested you don't need to wear a mask well, that's not true because even the testing isn't totally reliable. And I saw that uh, a Bloomberg piece yesterday said that the, the test that they're using in the White House, which is called the Abbott test, mm-hmm. is the one that you can use to get your, your results within 15 minutes. It's a quick test to see if you have COVID. Well, it turns out that not only is it um, producing a lot of false negatives, but that it may be as high as half of positive cases <laughs> Uh, may be wrong. Right. So it may miss as many as, as half of the positive cases. So the, the rate of you put, there's so many pieces to this that feel extremely unsafe. Right. So I, they're relying on a test now that, that they shouldn't even be relying on solely is their definition of why they don't do other protective measures. Now that test is, is proving to be not reliable. And so I, I do think there's an argument to be made that the white house is, is, 
the West Wing is the next hotspot in this country. Uh, uh, and as you pointed out, uh, Sabrina, as Jen just mentioned, so yesterday again, the president went to uh, a plant up in up in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Uh, everybody else is wearing a mask, except Donald Trump, uh, who's steadfast. What? I mean, what? He, he refuses to wear a mask. What message does that send to the country? It sends the message that masks are optional, and that's the opposite of what public health experts have said, and frankly, the opposite of what the White House's own federal guidelines have recommended. And it says something that the West Wing, or even just the White House more broadly, is a hotspot for coronavirus when it's supposed to be literally the most secure building in the entire country. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that there's a, a lot going on here. One is what Jen was talking about and, and what you also just alluded to, which is the president has sent mixed messages about what kind of precautions you have to take. And when that's the tone that's set from the top and set by the boss, it's not particularly surprising that in that particular workplace, they're not adhering to all the guidelines, social distancing guidelines or precautions with respect to masks and gloves. Uh, that they ought to be. Uh, but it also uh, undercuts all of the messaging from President Trump with respect to preparedness to reopen and to go back to work. He wants to get people back to work. He's created these arbitrary timelines to get people back to work, back to school, reopen the economy. And the White House is sort of a microcosm uh, at this moment of what happens when people go back to work or are back at work or continuously at work and in these confined spaces. And it's not, it's going to be a very long time before we can do that again. And so it's sort of playing with fire and, and proving that, you know, if it's not safe for these officials to go back to work or to go to work. And like we said, what is supposed to be one of the safest and most secure places in the country, how will it really be safe for anyone else to go back to work? in office right. buildings that on any given day right. might be have home to or work, or, you know, have an office space to thousands of people. Sure. And the message, if the president doesn't wear a mask, why should I have to, right? Mm -hmm. or, why, or, or, or why should I for sure? Uh, a lot more to talk about than just the coronavirus, believe it or not, including on the political front. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our panelists of Jen Bendry, Sabrina Siddiqui, and Chris Cadlago. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, 1.7 million strong America's teachers. Uh, and I got to tell you, what I hear uh, from more and more parents during this time of the coronavirus is they appreciate so much more the role of teachers than they ever did before now that they're stuck with their kids at home and have to try homeschooling. Uh, and of course, the teachers mean that's double duty. They've got to be prepared to bring to reopen the schools at the same time. They're helping parents with lesson plans and doing a lot of online teaching. So they are on the front lines more than ever in this time of the coronavirus. We salute the good members of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten uh, and encourage you to check out their website uh, at AFT.org. Uh, and as soon as it's safe to do so, uh, show your appreciation by hugging a teacher. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And now we're back with uh, today's panel on the roundtable. Jen Bendry joins us from HuffPost, Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal, and Chris Catalago from Politico. On the political front, Joe Biden doing as much as he can to stay in the news, handicapped, of course, because he is uh, locked at home, like all the rest of us, in his basement in Wilmington, Delaware. And one thing that's keeping him busy is the choice of his vice presidential running mate. Uh, one of our panelists, Chris Catalago, reported this week that among the outstanding women he's uh, talking to and considering, the front runner at this point appears to be California Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, Chris, do you stand by that story? At this moment, I still stand by it. Obviously, things could uh, change pretty <laughs> rapidly over the next couple of weeks. They're deep in the process already of, uh, of vetting these folks. I think um, the story kind of looked at her as this default pick, um, talking to as many people as we can. And I think um, that's still very much the case. Someone else could clearly emerge. We also found that um, someone who is certainly high up there and who has been making a case for herself as kind of a governing pick, certainly around the coronavirus pandemic and all of the uh, plans and ways she would dig us out of that is Elizabeth Warren as well. I, I know others have been uh, talking a lot about Amy Klobuchar, but um, Elizabeth Warren's name has come up uh, n not only among progressives and people who would like uh, Joe Biden to pick Elizabeth Warren, but also people in the Biden campaign who see um, her as, uh, as someone who could unite the party. Um, so I think those two uh, with Harris as kind of a, a default um, uh, lead the, the pack, but, you know, anything can happen. And these things uh, turn in all kinds of ways. Pretty much everybody uh, we talked to talked about um, the ultimate rapport that this person has with Joe Biden really being um, the, the, the deal breaker for, for someone if they're not able to 
to have that comfort level um, with Joe Biden. I think mm-hmm. clearly he's not going to pick them. Um, and so that's kind of the, the real X factor there that we clearly don't know. I think Biden himself, while people around him have been talking about this, he's not, uh, as far as we know, shared a lot of details about who he might prefer. Um, he's doing, uh, you know, Zoom meetings with uh, with uh, several of these folks, including um, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. He did an interview um, uh, town hall last night with uh, Stacey Abrams, the former um, uh, Democratic legislative leader from Georgia. So I think we're going to continue to see these folks out there um, for him. Um, and the other thing about Harris is, uh, you know, should she not get uh, vice president and, and Warren as well and, and some of these other people? I think he's certainly looking at them for cabinet positions and and also potentially the Supreme Court. I know he said he uh, appointed a woman of mm-hmm. color to the Supreme Court. So that's also another thing to watch down the road. So, Jen, uh, looking at these candidates, potential candidates, they seem to be taking different approaches. On the one hand, um, some of the maybe front runners like Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, are going about their job and saying, oh, sure, that would be great if I were chosen. But basically, I've got a job to do, and that's what I'm interested in. Whereas Stacey Abrams from Georgia, she's out there actively campaigning. You know, she was talking about running for president. And then as soon as she decided not to do that, she said, but I'm available for vice president. Right. So different approaches. Which one do you think is more effective? Well, I think that, uh, again, that the conventional wisdom in this in this arena is that you play it cool. Like you don't want to reek of desperation that you would like this very powerful job. So you're not going to be out there saying, I really want this. I really want this. Yeah, I, vote for me because <laughs> because it just looks like, you know, you got to act cool and act like, obviously you're busy, but if somebody would like you to be the vice president of the United States, you'd be honored, but you've got plenty going on right now. This is classic in national politics. And I think the difference between, the major difference between Stacey Abrams and all these other uh, names being floated for VP is that she doesn't have as much experience as them to stand on. So, you know, Stacey Abrams is is uh, running a, a voting rights group right now and having uh, town halls and and public events at least prior to the coronavirus. You know, talking about voting rights and um, and she was a, a Georgia House member for uh, several years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got Kamala Harris by contrast, for example. Uh, you know, she was the Attorney General of California. She's a United States Senator. You've got Elizabeth Warren. Uh, U.S. Senator stood up the CFPB. You know, you've got Amy Klobuchar, who's also been a senator, U.S. Senator for a long time. Her name has been floated over the years as a Supreme Court pick. So they've got these these bigger accomplishments to stand on. They've got a longer record, mm-hmm. and you don't need. To, it's the conventional wisdom, at least, is that you don't need to throw your name out there as if you, this is what you're desperate to get and so eager for. If you're, you can sit back a little bit and say, oh, you know, I've, I'm very happy in my current job. I've, I've got, I care about the people of Minnesota. I'm here to represent my state. Um, but, you know, I would be honored. Right. I'm honored just being mentioned. Right. You know? and it's then, the same uh, as the Academy Awards or like the, the yeah. Emmys, you know, it's an honor <laughs> just being nominated. I mean, of course they all want to win, but you don't want to come off looking like, you're just going to fall over yourself to get this award. Uh, and Sabrina, maybe the bigger question is, um, to what extent 
Uh, is Joe Biden hurt politically by being locked into his basement or is he being hurt at all? So I've talked to the campaign about this and they laugh at the where's Joe narrative that, <laughs> first of all, they believe is largely confined to Twitter and social media. Um, it's something that I think the campaign feels is purely a discussion among po political reporters in part because operatives are kind of pushing um, this idea that he's not visible enough. Um, it's true that Joe Biden has kept a uh, much lighter schedule. Um, he, not only did he have a lighter campaign schedule when he was holding rallies compared with the other candidates in the primaries, uh, but even now, of course, at at home where where he's been doing uh, virtual events, he has not had as many. Um, and a lot of it is because they there's there's a two sort of there's two thought processes here. One is that um, the election is just not at the, at the top of every voter's mind right now, and with the, the scale of the pandemic, he's been very tailored in the kind of kinds of events he's doing with healthcare professionals, frontline workers, um, areas holding virtual events in, in areas that have been affected by the crisis. Uh, but but feeling like he doesn't have to uh, be too political or, or try and refocus on the election at a time when all people can think about is when can my kids go back to school? Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. can I go back to work? Right. They don't really want to talk about the election right now, uh, six months out. And the other thought here is President Trump holds these daily press briefings at first, there may have been a bit of a concern that this is, you know, free media. It's earned media because it's being carried by the networks and everyone's watching. But as the president is more and more, um, was the right, right was the right word? I mean, you could just say it as he's more and more unhinged in recent weeks um, in terms of what he says before the cameras, telling people to ingest Tide pods, erupting at women reporters, storming off. I think they think that it's good for Joe Biden to sit back and watch that the president is self-destructing and he's his own worst enemy in many ways. And so they don't have much to lose uh, by not really forcing Joe Biden into the conversation. Right. Uh, one other quick thing I'd like to touch on before we uh, get your uh, favorite stories of the week and uh, we wrap up. And that is uh, yesterday, the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina, uh, step step down uh, uh, temporarily, at least as chair, because he is under investigation by the FBI for possible insider trading uh, to take advantage of the uh, information he knew about the uh, severity of the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic to sell some stocks and thereby to uh, profit personally from it. Um, Chris, how serious does this look? And um, or could this, or you know, end up entangling some other senators as well? I mean, I think it's extremely serious when you look at what some uh, justice experts and folks said around the, the time that uh, he had to turn over his uh, his phone. Is that this is this is really sort of unprecedented in the way that um, the federal government went about it, and um, it, it looks like uh, there are. Uh, kind of two ways of looking at it. One is that um, this could uh, uh, cost him his job ultimately. And the other is there's certainly fears out there just given um, 
comments Trump has made about Burr and 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 Trump uh, supporters that um, folks want to to make sure that this that the federal government is not using an overly heavy hand. So it's kind of a a strange uh, position for people who want. Uh, to find out, um, get to the bottom of this is um, our our politics at play here, and um, is he being uh, somehow treated unfairly? So I, I think you know we just have to know what he knew when he made these these trades, and I think uh, the, an investigation would get to the bottom of it. The other thing is, I really wonder how widespread this might be. I know there are other uh, senators um, who have turned over information about trades uh, by them or their family. Diane Feinstein, one of the people, um, uh, with her husband, Dick Blum, um, and, and uh, Kelly Loeffler. And, and um, so I think you know part of it will be, is this more widespread among the Senate? And if it is, um, you really start to see, I mean, ultimately, this kind of gets to the um, distrust that the public has in, in government in general. And so I think this, this could really be a, a widespread scandal. Jen, do you uh, hear other senators being nervous about this? Uh, at this moment, so far, as Chris was saying, it's Senator Dianne Feinstein, her name has come up and she was, uh, she was, people, and officials were looking into her trade dealings, like her stock sales, and also Kelly Loeffler from, mm-hmm. from Georgia. Georgia. So their names, th- this group of senators' names have been kind of out there in the news for the last couple of months about this issue. So I haven't heard of other senators currently freaking out. I mean, they could be privately, and they're certainly not going to tell us that now they're nervous that you know about stocks that they sold after they got a briefing on the the coronavirus pandemic. So I think that the bigger concern right now in the Senate is political, which is that um, if Senator Burr loses his job, and potentially if it spills over to the, you know, making the party look bad, that they could lose the Senate. They being Republicans could lose control of the Senate over this mm-hmm. if if it really does take out Richard Burr and infect the party in the Senate. So I think in this moment, because there's still a lot of um, information that needs to come out on what happened, I think there's just a sense that people are bracing for what this could mean for the makeup of the Senate. And, and Sabrina, um, uh, Chris alluded to this a little bit, that there's also the theory that the Trump White House engineered this, got the FBI, sicked the FBI on Richard Burr because he has not been following the party line from the White House, that it was Ukraine and not Russia. His committee actually said it was Russia in 2016, which we know it was, and they were trying to help Donald Trump. And that because of that, this is the White House's way of getting back at Richard Burr. And he also, uh, as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, led that committee's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And while the report in the end did not really get into obstruction of justice, they were very clear about contacts between the Trump campaign and Moscow. Uh, To your point, not towing the party line. It is true that Richard Byrne and his uh, wife sold, I think, 33 stocks worth somewhere between $628,000 and $1.72 million. Um, and this was, you know, I think less than a week after he had published an op-ed in Fox News um, saying that the U.S. was well prepared for the pandemic. Now, he says he was um, going off of news reports, not not using his 
private intelligence briefings or any uh, information you'd be privy to as a senator uh, to try and you know make some of these uh, to you he didn't use that knowledge to make some of these trades but um to, to the point that others have made, he's not the only one here. And so the question is, why was he singled out? Why not um, Kelly Loeffler? Why not uh, Jim Inhofe, uh, senator from Oklahoma? Some of the others who have been suspected of insider trading or, or selling stocks in a similar way um, and on a similar timeline, uh, raising questions over what those decisions were actually based upon. So, mm-hmm. so the fact that, that they singled out Richard Burr is what has some questioning whether or not that this is politically motivated. Uh, and we do know that this is a president who has been pretty open about his intent to retaliate against anyone who uh, <laughs> speaks out against right. him, especially from within his own party. You'll remember uh, that one of the task force they created amid the coronavirus pandemic uh, had every single Republican member of the Senate except Mitt Romney, who was not invited <laughs> because, of course, he voted to convict uh, the president right. in the impeachment trial. So, you know, it's possible. Uh, but I think we'll see how it unfolds. And especially if other uh, members of Congress are caught up and, um, and, and, and actually, you know, if there is, if the FBI does actually go after them in a more meaningful way. Okay. Uh, Chris and Jen and Sabrina, excellent conversation. We covered a lot of territory. We always ask you to uh, leave us with one little story of the week that caught your attention particularly. Uh, it could be virus-related or not, serious or not, just something that uh, you just stopped and said, hmm, how about that? I might want to talk more about that. You want to start us off, Jen? Sure. Uh, a story I saw that made me go, hmm, I might want to talk about that, <laughs> is that there's a wild beaver community in the UK that has been what? A, a raving success. <laughs> the UK <Where>? is Devon. <laughs> There's a wild beaver colony that they've let thrive, and it's been a huge win for the environment and the community because the beavers have significantly reduced water flow, helped plant and animal life flourish, and they've drawn in a crowd of regular visitors to come see the beavers. But they cut down trees. (laughs) In this particular area in the UK, they've been wonderful for everything that you can think of with the environment. They've uh, They've helped to reintroduce formerly native species because they're they're clearing out some of the invasives they've also because they've helped to restore the environment there's also other animals now that are thriving in the area like water voles and otters and wading birds so there's there's this community somewhere in the uk that is celebrating the success of wild beavers you know uh, i've often thought about how the animals in the uh, in africa must be celebrating right they've got all this land now with no tourists and no jeeps looking at them every day. Well, there was a photo uh, a month or so ago of lions yes. laying out on a warm road that was closed in a in a park, like a safari. And yeah. they were, ever since the park closed, these animals have now come out and just been like lounging around all over the roads, <laughs> feeling so. pretty awesome that nobody's there. So at least the animals are happy about what's going yes. on. What caught your attention, Sabrina? I swear, Jen and I did not coordinate, but my story is quite literally oh. the opposite scenario of what she said, where uh, Georgia Uh-oh. officials Uh-oh. are warning that this invasive species of giant lizards have come up in the state, and they're posing Wait, a the state of Georgia or the the country state of Georgia. Georgia. Oh my God! Uh, they can grow up to four feet long and weigh up 
upward of 10 pounds. So sometimes people mistake them for baby alligators, but they are not. They are very, a very in, invasive type of lizard that is a threat to wildlife and crops because they quote unquote eat anything they want. So there is now this massive search going on in Georgia as if there aren't enough problems um, where uh People are being told to report a, a sighting of this lizard, whether it's dead or alive, because they need to get them and they oh need to God. eradicate them uh, from the area because they are apparently voracious predators. And on the one hand, they said they shouldn't be too worried because they're not known to pose a danger to humans, but they're also saying they should be shot on sight. And one of the <laughs> lizards was actually caught God. on video in Florida chasing some um, a human. So <laughs> I think that... <laughs> <laughs> There's a this, lot going on. I don't know if you had heard about the murder hornets, which also came to the, yes, came oh to yeah, the U.S. The murder hornets, uh, yeah. But now we've also got giant lizards. Um, so the murder world is, the world is ending. Actually, is what we're I, trying I, to say. I guess right. Wow. But the it's beaver like the, will be here. Well, let's hope it, that let, the lizards. Maybe the beaver community can take care of this. <laughs> let's hope the lizards don't find the beaver community. Yeah. Well, uh, Chris, can you top that? Do you have a wild animal story? I, I actually think that I can, and I wanna, I, I wanna thank Sabrina for setting this up, and apologize to Bill and everyone else for ending on such a dark note here. Um, I'd normally pick something a little more uplifting, but uh, basically, the story that caught my eye and and should catch everyone's eye is out of Alaska. I think it came out yesterday. And it's with a bunch of climate uh, scientists who are warning about a huge uh, landslide in a fjord there that could cause a, quote, catastrophic tsunami. I saw that, yeah. uh, And the the quote that caught my eye was from an Alaska-based hydrologist who said it could happen Mm. anytime. So can you imagine with everything going on now, including the lizards and uh, murder hornets, that we would have this massive... uh, tsunami caused by a huge landslide of a fjord um uh happening in the u.s um yeah it uh doesn't make you feel too great about that's a real (laughs) buzzkill i know i'm sorry i apologize Uh, it should have involved animals but i'm sure mine uh, is sort of good and bad news i guess um the good news first of all it's a story of a guy that I feel like I know, although I've never met him, uh, Dr. Joseph Fair. He is a leading epidemiologist and one of the health experts on NBC News, who from the beginning of the virus has been out there telling people you have to social distance, you have to wear a mask, here's how we get on top of this. Uh, And then Dr. Fair, who's 43 years old, took a flight to Miami, wore a mask on the flight. The flight was pretty crowded. A couple of days later, he himself came down with the coronavirus. He is doing fine. He's going to be fine. Um, But I was struck when NBC News did a little story on him night before last, and they said, so uh, what do you think about this? And and a couple of comments that really struck me. One was he said, "If if it can take me down, it can take anybody down, meaning he knows so much about it. And the other thing he said, so what is your message to people? And his message was, quote, don't be in a hurry to open up, you know, and I just thought to myself, boy, the pandemic like this brings out the best of us and the worst of us. And this, I think, is the best of us. And the worst of us are those gun-toting yahoos at the state capitals who say, yeah, if there's no pandemic, just open everything up and let us go back. So 
Uh, I salute Dr. Fair for his good work and for his uh, message. Um, and I want to thank our panelists, uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, Jen Bendry, and Chris Catalago, uh, for joining us on the roundtable today. Uh, let me wrap up with a parting shot, which I will uh, always um, make sure you understand are my thoughts only, not necessarily the thoughts of the members of the panel. But, you know, friends, uh, we Americans face a big choice on November 3rd between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But we face an even bigger choice right now between Donald Trump and Dr. Anthony Fauci. Bigger because so many lives are at stake. And which one we follow will make such a difference. Donald Trump says, for example, mission accomplished. Anthony Fauci says, not so fast. Donald Trump says, full speed ahead in reopening businesses and schools. Anthony Fauci says, go slow, especially with kids. Donald Trump says, don't worry, we'll have a vaccine in no time. Anthony Fauci says, no, it could take another year. Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci says, wear a mask. And Donald Trump says, not me. So which one do we believe? The world's leading epidemiologist, director of the National Institute on Infectious Diseases since 1984, or a man who knows nothing about medicine or science and won't even listen to those who do? To me, the choice is a no-brainer, but don't take it from me. Take it from Liz Cheney. I know you never thought you would hear me agree with Liz Cheney on anything, but here's what she tweeted this week, quote, Dr. Fauci is one of the finest public servants we have ever had. He is not a partisan. His only interest is in saving lives. We need his expertise and his judgment to defeat this virus all Americans should be thanking him every day. Amen. If only Donald Trump would step aside and put Anthony Fauci in charge. And that's it. That's our roundtable for today. Thanks again to Sabrina Siddiqui, Jen Bendry, and Chris Catalago. Thanks to all of you for joining us. And uh, remember one little task, one little favor we ask of you is to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by going to wherever you're listening to your podcast. Pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, tell your friends to do the same thing, and then we're in business. And also encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Donald Trump's not the only one out there on Twitter. A lot of us on Twitter. All of our panelists are on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, at Bill Press Pod. Follow me on Twitter. And meanwhile, stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy. And we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.